All right, hello. Welcome to episode 45 of Scuttlebutt, presented by Service Credit Union. I'm Nick. I'm here with William. Howdy. I'm here with Vic. Hey. And we got a few little news items to chat, chat about today. Uh, let's start with the one that's kind of national news because it's historic and it's barrier-breaking and it's a new four-star general in the pipe. Uh, general Langley might be the first black four-star four general Marine four in star Marine Corps general. history. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's... It's monumental, uh, but it's also sad that we've had to wait till the 21st century f to make this announcement. Yeah, we have. Yeah. I have this article in front of me. That says after 246 years, Marines set uh, for their first black four-star general. But I think to be fair, it was what like almost it was 90 years before the Marine Corps even had a general. So we maybe like 150 years. Oh, it was longer than that, wasn't it? Well, I think the first general was uh, 1864. I think they got one until the Spanish-American War. No, it was. Uh, it was like his. His name was uh was like General Jacob uh Zaney, I think he was the he was the commandant came in in eighteen sixty four and then he was promoted I think in eighteen sixty seven. So he was the first uh okay. brigadier general in Marine Corps history. I just never yeah, for that early part I don't even think about generals. I was I was like the commandant was either the Commodore or uh just well, because back then the yeah. Marine Corps was like not even big yeah. enough to justify having a general in charge. Yeah, yeah that's. I mean, I I feel like in a lot of ways we named our senior officer commandant because we weren't going to get a general. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we have to give him a cool name, yeah. or else he's going to get you know talked over at every uh, joint staff meeting. Yeah. Also, we were uh, just. I don't, I don't know what it is, but we couldn't decide if we wanted to be use the British Navy terms or if we wanted to use the French Army terms. Well, I'm sure there, there I'm was, sure early on there was some pushback, too, from the Navy. Like, yeah. like, we don't want a star on the head of our sister service. I mean, yeah. I think for a very, very long time, the Marine Corps was still seen essentially as naval infantry. Yeah, and then uh, the Navy Slum is just a bunch of uh, people keeping us clean on the boats. Yeah, and yeah. They get mad. They, I think that they tried to get them off the boats. They're like, oh, "We don't need these police officers on our boats." Like they're hurting morale, and then they took them off half the boats, and those boats just went crazy. Like they, <laughs> yeah. they're like, "Oh no, maybe we do need that discipline." Maybe. <laughs> so, but regardless, this is monumental. This is awesome, and um, I, you know, I only know of him through the announcements, but from the people that I respect, uh, that are wearing the rank and have worn the rank, this is—he's uh, the right guy. To be yep. selected, and uh, you know, uh, as as amazing as this is, he just as a marine is the right person to. Yeah, to and get the this position, position he is taking is U.S. Forces Africa. Yep, the chief of U.S. Africa Command, which is yeah. as as everyone's seen in the news lately, is in. It's, it's getting hot in in no many senses of the word. Yeah, it reminds yep. me a lot of uh, the '90s when I was going through. Uh, you know, I was in college. And all of the all of the stuff through my poli sci studies were focusing on the African unrest, and it was just like this hotbed of uh, of instability. And I, I think that pendulum, and maybe it's always been. And now with us out of the long war, we're yeah we're seeing more of it now it's because to look we're away. Yeah. yeah we don't have the you we're know not, OEF yeah. OIF blinders on. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, it's a joint force uh, posting, so it had to be four stars because he actually held the Marine Africa Command for a few. He was an interim guy on yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, so he's been in theater and by in 
Africa Command is based out of Stuttgart, Germany, for anybody wondering. Um, but, you know, yeah, Africa, it's... Uh, we kind of ignore it, it feels like, as Americans. Uh, as we were talking about before the show, we, like we, as, as the United States, really don't have a long colonial history with Africa as a lot of other of our Western powers do. So us, for it, it's, it's something that we have less personal attachment to, uh, for better or worse. And, and it's, it's about to be a hot flashpoint. As we mentioned, uh, China is investing heavily into Africa. Africa is about to get hit hard by the upcoming food shortages as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's already a political and social unrest, especially among between uh, Christians and Muslims in, in, in the continent. So it's, it's, it's going to come yeah. up to be a flashpoint in the, in the coming decades. Yeah, and it's, it's, there's a lot of points of tension in there, too. Migration, human migration within Africa has been very high lately. Um, a well, lot yeah, of people have been moving from the dangerous yeah. brush into the cities. Well, it, cities as we look at, like, the Marine Corps yeah. mission, uh, you know, to be able to respond to the littorals, exactly what you're saying is, and, and uh, you know, I think a lot of – there's a lot of climate issues. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I think that famine, drought, uh, and lack of, uh, of accessibility of potable water – uh, has been a driving force in Africa for you know for decades, but I think it's really coming to a head, especially as you are having essentially these massive cities. I, I don't know. Uh, Mogadishu, I think, was a good example. Um, uh, it was a thriving city for you know since the French, you know, the French yeah. colonial era, um, and then even after the colonial powers left, it was still sort of this. Paris of Africa or whatever, but then you end up with this massive displaced population, this migrant population that moves in and creates like this shanty sort of urban sprawl outside of the urban built up areas. And, you know, there's lack of essential services, resources. There's clearly some, uh, there's a lot of ethnic and, and sociopolitical mm -hmm. um, turmoil and, and tension there. So just, it, like I said, it becomes a flashpoint. I think we're seeing that more and more as, Resources become more scarce. Yeah, there's less aid, there's less involvement, and there's more people migrating into areas that maybe could have sustained quality of life for a million people. And now, if you include the urban sprawl, they're into the tens of millions of people. Yeah, um, it's brutal. And yeah. these people are moving for water, education, and information, like jobs and things like that. So, it's a hard thing for. The U.S. to like just kind of keep it an eye on because uh, I think it, U.S. forces total about six thousand in, in Africa, so yeah. we don't have a lot of eyes on the ground beyond just experts in the field that are able to relay information back. I think our NGOs honestly are probably our like boots on the ground yeah. for the most part because yeah, like you said, our, the DoD footprint is so small. Yeah, and I think you know I guess to unpack some of the points that you brought up, William, which were really good. Um, the first one being China and Russia. Nick, you had mentioned that a lot of the mercs, the Russian mercs that are in Ukraine now are sort of cutting their teeth yeah. through some of these brush fires and stuff in Africa. China, I don't think it's any, I, I don't think it's coincidence that after the Marine Corps rolled up Joint Task Force HOA, uh, Horn of Africa, JTF HOA, that then all of a sudden China started coming in with a lot of infrastructure projects and, and um, yeah. You know, sort of that soft, soft power. They have a lot of influence in Africa right now. 
um, to talk about the the religious conflicts. I mean, China, uh, Africa has because we don't know much about China because they don't publish, they don't have a census, they don't give us data. Um, I, I think from what we know, the largest, the fastest growing Christian population right now in the world is in Africa, but also one of the most established Muslim populations is also in Africa. So there's a lot of tension there. Um, we talked about the climate issues. So, yeah, and then, yeah, we have really, I think, stayed out of it a lot. But if you just look in the past 40 years from the attacks on the embassies, uh, pre-9-11, Liberia in the 90s, uh, the Arab Spring in Libya, you know, everything that happened, having to move forces over to be a crisis response for that area, Somalia, mm-hmm. uh, Mali, that was obviously French involvement, but that was also, you know, they're going after uh, Boko Haram. Um, ISIS is finding inroads in yeah. these areas where there's a power vacuum. Um, so, yeah, we I think it's one of the areas where we have mainly stayed out because, and, and, and so if you look, I guess, regionally, in the Middle East, you can make a pretty strong argument, or at least you can make the argument that much of the stuff that was happening there was because of colonial, uh, in in response to what was perceived as colonial and imperialistic um, agendas. We have not done much in Africa, but yet it continues to be a hotbed. Like we haven't had much, like our fingers in it, yeah. if you will. Yeah, so, uh, it's to be great, and I, I think yeah, having. Um, a marine of this caliber in charge of yeah. this joint command as deeply analytical as they say Langley is you know none of us in this room have met him right. uh, <laughs> yeah well, well I'll, I'll, I'll take the word like on the, it he seems like the right guy yeah so, so. I mean, his his confirmation hearing is uh, scheduled for today so we wish uh, Lieutenant General Michael E. Langley the best of luck in going forth and 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 especially in in his future as as the chief of uh, U.S. Africa Command. And for those listening tomorrow or any days after today is Thursday, July twenty eighth. Yeah. All right. I think anytime you have a Marine take over as the chief of a joint command that's a big deal it's a big deal or maybe yeah. what actually no it might have happened last thursday my apologies no he wasn't no, i don't think he's been confirmed it's, yet. Yet. it's today mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Oh, okay yeah pretty sure it's today i mean it is like what 10 30 yeah. he may have already had may have already yeah had yeah <laughs> congress likes to get stuff done before lunch <laughs> yes right <laughs> Dude, i tried like, we did our one thing we're done <laughs> drop the microphone anyways yeah. Yep. Here's a bunch of stuff we don't want to pass and stamp of approval. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Break for lunch. All right. So before we move on to our next point of business, let's let Nancy tell us one last time, maybe one last time, hopefully they sign on for more, from uh, Service Credit Union, our sponsors for today's episode. Thanks, Service Credit Union. This episode of Scuttlebutt is sponsored by Service Credit Union. Our friends at Service Credit Union have been serving military, veterans, and their families for over 65 years. You might know that they provide mortgages, including VA loans as well as auto and personal loans. But did you know that they now have a loan specifically for the iBot mobility device? For those who don't know, the iBot is a revolutionary device that goes above and beyond what a traditional mobility device can do. It can go up curbs, navigate stairs and snow, and even rise up to six feet. 
Of course, this device also comes with a high cost that isn't usually covered by insurance. So Service Credit Union has stepped in to help provide its members with financing, with no money down and terms up to 72 months. For more details, visit servicecu.org backslash ibot. All right, also recently, because, you know, our littoral point-to-point amphibious uh, capabilities are in flux right now, uh, we had a couple of ACVs have some troubles in Pendleton last week. One flipped over and one took some damage in what looks like very heavy seas. Um, and it was good news. No one was injured that we know about. No, was, no injuries reported. Yep. But the investigation is going on right now, and operations with ACV is currently paused. Now, Vic, you wrote the book on ACVs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure did. As our, as our, as our resident. It was a pop-up book, though, so I didn't do actually a lot of writing. But as our, as our resident amphibian, figures. Vic, what do, you, uh, what do you have to say about this? Um, the, the first thing I want to say is I wish Colonel Howe were here. Right. <laughs> but he is uh, in Italy. Uh, you know, doing the Lord's work. Oh, poor uh, guy. Yeah, it's a rough gig. I don't know how you can gig. get anything done out there. Southern Italy. So tough. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I believe he is actually looking into ACV-related things um, because a lot of the parts, and I think you talked about this mm-hmm. last time you yeah. saw him, a lot of parts uh, coming from Italy. Um, so, yeah, rough gig. Um, but that being said, uh, I, I guess I'm the expert amongst us three, so let me do my best here. Um, so, yeah, uh, first and foremost, when you're – and this actually replies a lot to EABO and what we're talking about with stand-in forces in how um, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance seems to be injected in every level. Uh, one of the things that you do as an amphibious – capable marine is you have to have to pay attention to surf conditions um growing up surfing big hobby of mine <laughs> so i was more than fine with it but it's it's time consuming and it has to be feel fairly accurate uh at the time that i was coming up through the marine corps using fairly archaic uh techniques like for example you would have um, a surf report that you'd have to fill out and within that you have to like watch a hundred waves um, and you're measuring it based on your height and how much over the horizon you can see. Um, you take, like, empty water bottles and chuck them and then measure how far they go over the time that you're timing it, and that gives you sort of the current yeah. wind. You, I mean, it's like, oh, throw, you know, you, they, you're doing whatever you can you're to measure the grass. wind. Yeah, 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 you're like, yeah. You're like, a, like a golfer, <laughs> yeah, like getting ready to tee off in a lot of ways. But you get this picture, an overall picture of what the water is going to do once in your amphibious vehicle, uh, at the time it was a 23-ton AAV. Now you're talking, you know, 30-something to 40-something mm. tons of ACV going in the water. Um, you have a, you know, fairly low-speed propulsion system. So you really are, in a lot of ways, at the mercy of the sea. Uh, and in this case, it seems like, and again, I'm just going off of uh, public forum data. There's investigations still ongoing, but based off of uh, information that was coming out from the National Weather yep, the Service, high seas due to a typhoon yeah. in the South Pacific. I mean, they're yep. talking, you know, sea states upwards of like four fives, and you know, yep. through that surf report, you would get your sea state optimal sea state conditions for AAVs was one to three. You can do four. 
Five, you're talking about something pretty dangerous, so you really need to like probably be in a real world combat situation to be doing operations because your your capabilities would be so degraded in a C state five. And what you're talking about with C state five are, you know, breakers like plunging breakers like you would see like in surf movies at five to eight feet, swells at ten feet. I mean, ten feet. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, it's pretty gnarly for uh, us non-surfers. Can you break down those those terms? Yeah, so if you think about it, if you were to stand on the beach and you were to see a 10-foot wave, you would not be able to see the horizon, like, at all. You would yeah. just be looking. And that's you're standing on the land. So you imagine being in the water. And the, usually when you're having breakers at that height, they're not shore breaks, meaning you wouldn't be waist-deep, you know, holding a, a boogie board or something and then, like, just propelling yourself. Yeah. You would be out sort of floating, you know, well over your own head in that kind of water with then a wave that's already, you know, as tall as a basketball hoop. And you don't measure the wave necessarily on the the highest point of it either. You measure it sort of, like I said, where, you're, where you can see. So there are parts of it that are probably even higher than 10 feet. Yeah. Um, and then you have like things called like spilling surf, which is just sort of like this white, the whitewash trickle that comes down. Those are pretty easy to navigate. You have like, um, you know, different types of waves, but the plunging where you're actually getting a barrel and it's just the force of all of that water, you know, just hundreds and thousands of tons of water coming at that force. Yeah. It's really hard. To and it's not going one direction. Well, and that's it's the thing. So you're not up, getting the top's going forward, the bottom's going backwards. Yeah, there's, and a, there's lot a lot that comes into that. So you're too, talking so. about the a high wind, yep. so probably somewhere in, mid, in the range of like 15 to 25 miles an hour of your wind that sets above the surface, and then you've got a current that's probably moving somewhere between I don't know five or ten knots. So I mean, the water's really churning. It's really dangerous. Um, if you were to be a surfer out there, you'd have to be a very experienced surfer, and even very experienced surfers will die in those sorts of conditions. I mean, you look at, like, Mavericks, and you hear about all of these great surfers that would go to these spots, and, like, you know, they've surfed tens of thousands of waves, and then it just takes one. And so anyways, based on what I understand here is that the vehicles had a malfunction and then went parallel to the shoreline, meaning the breakers were hitting them on their flanks, on their the mm-hmm. widest part of the vehicle. Vice having a vehicle that is going perpendicular, head first into the waves, under propulsion. Um, and so, yeah, f- it, for sure they're going to roll over. Yeah, and that's a rotational, that's a very strong rotational mm-hmm. force that when you limit, when you get to the narrow way of actually rotating an ACV, it suddenly becomes... Yeah, an option because otherwise they're forty-five feet long. How how long are they? Six, forty-five, uh, fifty, fifty. I'm stood yeah, next I, to I, it. I, the, <laughs> it. I mean, they're pretty light. But I, it's I a basketball court almost. Uh, oh, an ACV? Yeah. No, 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 no. It's more like it's probably thirty feet long. It felt really big on that sh- on that show floor. Yeah, because you uh, you know you, you've got most the uh, we talked about this before like all of the weights in the front mm-hmm. so that the back is cavernous obviously to put troops in there but also that's where all of your air is going to be to help keep it afloat. Um, so all of the weight's up front. So, yeah, you're talking you know, a good 18 to 30 feet. I probably should I should probably know this since I wrote the requirements, <laughs> helped write the requirements of the stupid thing, but it's been a minute, um, and I don't retain information well. Uh, 
but I will say that like another aspect you need to consider when you're talking and Nick, you know, being a SoCal guy yourself, you understand like when you're getting those massive waves, it also creates churn on the seafloor. And so you end up with like these trenches and especially if the, the breakers are hitting in the same spot every time, it's going to mm-hmm. churn that sand underneath and it's going to create these trenches, which will then form sandbars. Um, a lot of the coastal stuff, especially around northern parts of Camp Pendleton, some parts of San Clemente, uh, I think they were further south near Oceanside, but um, it's really rocky. Yeah, that Sano Beach is just pure. Yeah, it's really brutal. Like, you have to wear booties yeah. if you're going to go out or you're going to cut your feet up pretty good. But um, all of that says, especially if you're going perpendicular and you're now at the mercy of the current, if you hit the sandbar – at the same time that you're getting hit by a wave, I mean, it's it's for sure yeah. going to flip. Um, it's probably what damaged the one that got yeah that's, that didn't flip. It's probably hit one of those sandbars. And it just got stuck. I will yeah. say, too, that, like, oh, a, 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 a real uh, positive note for the ACV was you had something that catastrophic and no one was hurt. Yeah. Because if you remember, I mean, just two years ago, the AAV, and now that was a that thing sunk off of San Clemente Island, mm-hmm. you know, in hundreds of feet depth um that was just a really ugly ugly situation so i don't want to start drawing parallels but i will say that you had a vehicle rollover in the surf zone and no one was hurt man that is a that yeah that's something to say for that capability yeah it sounds like they were able to wait just a few moments for the surf to pull back and they're able to all jump out so yeah and then tow they were able to tow it so that's awesome that it has Mm self-recovery capability that's a big deal too uh so uh you know just Thank the Lord above that, man, no one was hurt this time. Um, but I will say, like, through my personal experience, I was uh, training, helped training reservists as inspector instructor. Guys came back from OIF, one of the later iterations, so completely landlocked. Came back, hey, let's get back to core competencies. We got them out in the water. And, dude, you just you, – you don't understand what having an inexperienced crew and people who aren't familiar with amphibious operations – when they're not doing that, when that's not muscle memory, and you get into that practical application, I mean, you can do all of your, like, throwing tow ropes and, like, calm seas and the jetty. You can practice, 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 practice. But at some point, man, you're going to get into that real-world situation, and it gets super gnarly, and people freak out. I mean, being in the water isn't na- a natural – it's not naturally comfortable for a lot of people. Um, and so as soon as you start taking on water, it's not going exactly how you trained in calm seas. It's not how the PowerPoint presentation <laughs> said it was going to be. Dude, people freak out, like, big time. Like, they would probably rather, like, take the hill than have to navigate heavy surf in a, you know, multi- yeah. a, a 23 to 40-ton vehicle. I just had, and not making light of the situation, a funny mental image of someone – going through a, a hard time, some sort of tragic situation, and just the PowerPoint, the shitty low-level PowerPoint just starts flashing in their mind. <laughs> like, why didn't I read the bullets? Why didn't I read the bullets? Yeah. Like, come on, get to slide 14. That's where my information is. This is an emergency, damn it. Anyway. But, yeah, so, uh, again, uh, well, maybe when the investigation's over, we can get Colonel Howe back on. And we yeah. can talk a little, you know, from an actual expert in this thing uh but yeah again just so happy uh that there was, no one was was hurt or killed 
uh, yep. in this incident. But yeah, uh, ACV operations are paused just two years after we completely shit canned AAV water operations. So when it comes to, I think, you know, last episode we talked about shore to shore operations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just gonna, it's gonna, and you do this whenever you have an incident, you do put a pause on it because obviously you don't want these things compounding, especially if there's something in the platform that you would learn through the investigation that could have prevented a future incident. So it's very natural for you to put a pause on these things. The big thing is what are they going to do once we get the results of the investigation? Yep. All right. And speaking of amphibiousness, uh, something we've been talking about a lot lately. We're transitioning to a new topic now, guys. Transitioning to a new topic. I, th- I, can be, I think we got yeah. that. that was yeah, good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Amphibiousness, or could you say uh, amphibiosity? Amphibiosity, or, you know, the future of the design of the force. Or, yeah, maneuver warfare maneuver. from the sea. From the sea. <laughs> some An sort expeditionary of, yeah. advanced base or something. Yeah, some sort of advanced base concept from dealing with little islands. Maybe a are, are there any more like hashtag triggers we can drop yeah. before we actually start talking? Like, oh, maybe that's where how we could get more people is to start dropping hashtags <laughs> left and right. Oh, beautiful. Hashtag FD third twenty thirty. Hashtag <laughs> FD two zero three zero. Hashtag generals cabal. Yeah. Hashtag hashtag not my core. <laughs> oh God. Well, no, it is their. Well, uh, the thing is, the problem is they view it as their core and. Uh, well, because it is. Anyways, so yeah, yeah the, the, it, the topic of, of the big topic of the day is, as we've hinted and talked about uh, heavily before, uh, the Marine Corps is going currently undergoing a force design 2030 efforts to modernize and prepare against the pacing threat, which, as we all know, is China. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, high ups in, in the in the Marine Corps, as well as retirees who are opposed to these efforts. So we're going to try to dig into why they're opposed to it, what is the, the validity of their claim, uh, where they, what they got right, what they got wrong, and then some of the key players. And as we've mentioned, the Marine Corps Gazette has been home to a lot of these individuals writing under the, uh, under the name Marinus. And, and actually, in the September edition, you will see who these, uh, who these individuals are. And um, yeah, their final article is published, will be on the shelves here in a couple weeks. So, yeah, so uh, essentially... Uh, but what, unfortunately, I don't think that's the last we're going to hear from it. Oh. But we'll, this is the la- not the last you're going to hear from it, and I think that's what we're getting at here, right, is is that they have gone outside of sort of – they've branched their platform. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So uh, so the, the, a lot of them have written for the Marine Corps Gazette. Uh, definitely check out the articles in, uh, under Marinus. But a lot of uh, uh, opposition to Forest Science 23 has also come up in several other um, – non-Marine Corps, Marine Corps Gazette sources as well, trying to, to branch out the argument and, and really bring it to the forefront. And to, even to the extent where uh, uh, Jim Webb has written an article for, was it uh, Wall Street Journal, correct? Uh, yeah. He, did he also have one in Politico? I think in Politico as well. Or he was quoted in it at least. He was quoted, quoted in Politico. Yeah, the Politico yeah, article right. was not written by Jim Webb. Yeah, no. Uh, the two people him. that worked on it did a really good job in Politico. Yeah. But General Van Riper wrote for Marine Corps Times... Um, he also, I think, had a Wall Street. It was a uh, Washington Post. I believe, yeah, one, yeah. one of those. Washington. Anyway, but yeah, as you can see, I think, especially, which is interesting. I think we saw a lot of activity outside of the Gazette as we were leading up to the hearings, but now mm-hmm. that basically FD twenty thirty has been given congressional approval, they're continuing though, like reaffirmed because sort of they had it before outreach. they ever implemented it. 
the Pentagon and the Congress before they. Well, I think that's especially yeah. from General Zinni, and we'll unpack all of this stuff. But yeah. yeah, his big thing is how are you approving a policy that hasn't been fully vetted? Yeah, through experimentation. So let's let's start yeah. off with, with with the crux of what the detractors yeah, to uh, forces on twentieth theory again. Like, what is, is is what's their deal, man? <laughs> oh God! Are you guys are looking at me. For uh, all of you, if this were a video, well, no, series, I, I can, I can help kick it off. So, so as, as as we know, Force Science Twenty Thirty is uh, Vic. I mean, it, it's, it's correct to say it's pretty radical change to the Marine Corps. It is, and I, I, I and I do. I am not unsympathetic to their criticisms. Um, uh, but I, I will say, and maybe I'm just too much in like the uh, Michael Hunziker camp. I have to appreciate. The effort, right? Um, I mean, even General Nella, and I know obviously General Berger is firmly in the crosshairs because he's the guy sitting in the seat. But we can't forget that General Neller called it out uh, in his it was his last year as commandant. No, it was before that. Was he it called before? it out in 2017. Yeah, so he, he basically said like, yeah. "We are not equipped and yep. manned for this future fight." Yeah, he told that to Congress in 2017 when they started. Yeah. Approving the whole concept. So, I mean, I don't know how General Berger is supposed to respond to that when his predecessor has basically put yeah. you on blast as the future guy. And I know he wasn't putting General Berger specifically, but he was putting the Marine Corps' future on blast, saying, if something, if the balloon goes up, we're screwed. Yeah. And so, of course, General uh, Berger has to respond. And I don't disagree. I think that. You know, we, we really want to focus on Ukraine right now as validation for heavy, heavy force or a, a, a heavier footprint. Mm -hmm. But I think if we look at other things like Azerbaijan and Armenia, if we look at things that people have theorized are going to be required in Taiwan, uh, if we look at, I don't know, uh, Mali. Yes. Yeah. Well, you, even, you could even look at Ukraine still because the for early stages of the operation, the special operation, air quotes, war, uh, were the not... the information war that they had? Is that no, ju no oh. just the... Uh, Russia doesn't call it a war. They call right. it a special operation. Uh, so I was doing... I, thought you, I didn't I know if you were referring to 2014. Yeah, that's the yeah, oh, special no, no, no. operations with, yeah, with quotes with around that. With big quotes around special operations. Their invasion of a sovereign nation. Um, was... was uh, Probably a good case for some of the 2030 concepts, because it wasn't until everything got stabilized and settled in that we're starting to feel like. Well, the, I think that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, you see, that obviously, a very heavy footprint. They're not doing logistics well, yeah. and what have they accomplished? If you look so. at the amount of the war chest that has been put into this, you know, personnel and material, dude, it's an absolute shit show. Yep, and so. You could say, well, we do maneuver, we do that sort of magtaffery better. We do this combined arms fight better. So if we were in the Russian shoes, we would have done this better. But at the same time, it's like we that that is a completely biased opinion. Right. There's no data that to, would to necessarily show that, and it just it's taking a lot. So that heavy that heavy ass isn't necessarily. The decisive yeah. factor that and it, it would have been maybe ten years. And ago. it wasn't until recently when they kind of stabilized that eastern southeastern front line when the war transitioned into kind of more of a 
throw haymakers at each other situation um, where they just keep throwing artillery at each other and just holding down. Yeah, what it's devolved to basically right yeah, now. Yeah, what it's devolved to right now. And well, also, you have to remember the Russians, they're not hindered by yeah. things like human rights yeah. and the Geneva Convention. So if we had those, rest- I mean, which we do have those restrictions, like we want to fight wars ethically, dude, we wouldn't be able to do, I mean, not only we, we wouldn't would, be able to find success the way the Russians yeah. are trying to find success. We wouldn't be destroying Entire every cities. city yeah. that we can't capture. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and that's that's where they're getting used to their their tube artillery. It's just like they're able to get in, set in. Uh, the high Mars can't catch up to them fast enough, and then they can set in for a, a day at a time before the return fire. And I think one one of the biggest uh, things that helps the combatants uh, forces on 2030 efforts is the fact that acknowledging that Russia is not the pacing threat that the Marine Corps I- is worried about. We there, the, the invasion of Ukraine, um, despite the successes that Russia has, has gained has, has, has shown their playbook and that they really are no longer, they're nowhere near as capable as we thought that uh, mm-hmm. as we assumed they were before the invasion. And, 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 and it's now really switched for, uh, the orientation from Russia to China. I think, as as the real true pacing threat to deal with, and if you listen to like a lot of the uh, Marine Corps Association dinners we have with a lot of the guest speakers, that's been a key point that they've been hammering on. It's China, 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 and it's very yeah. kind of reminiscent of the Marine Corps going into World War II, and and and, and a lot of the very same situations. That interwar period between World War One and World Two was a, a period of innovation, trial and error, establishing new doctrine, applying new technologies that had not been applied before. Um, addressing old concepts that are new concepts that are brought up in the previous war, but then refining them to actually get them down pat to be effective in combat, and that's what you're seeing a lot of with forces on 2030 is a lot of innovation change and, mm-hmm. and realizing that yes, the nature of uh, of war is the same, but the character of war has drastically changed in the past 20 years, and with that realization, understanding that that is. In order to get it right in the future, the change needs to start occurring now. Well, let me ask you this: as you know, since you wrote your dissertation on this, many of these generals, this cabal, if you will, uh, has they grew up in the Marine Corps during the last formative change. Yes, the post-Vietnam yeah. era, or even you know they were or even they like were platoon commanders, company commanders in Vietnam. Yeah. Then they lived through the switch over to maneuver warfare. I ask you this: Is it because they have so much skin in the game in the formation of the MAGTAF that they don't want to break from it because they feel like it's the panacea? Well, I'm or? gonna I'm gonna let them speak for themselves. I think, especially with uh, Van Riper as the uh, one of the primary critiques of it, is 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 that they don't want to f- uh, sacrifice the flexibility of the Marine Corps and putting all our eggs in one basket in in this Force Nine Twenty Thirty, which is aimed primarily at how to deal with China. And they, I, they, they're worried about the, the um, losing uh, as much artillery as you previously had. They're worried about the switch over to rockets. They're obviously greatly concerned about the uh, divestment of tanks completely. Yeah. So, uh, and so I, I think it's how – do, how, how do I put it? Um, well, if can I? Um, yeah, go just, for it. Uh, just like you said, to use their words rather than just trying to you know, uh, – Assume what it is that they're saying. So uh, General Van Riper wrote an article uh, f- uh, in Marine Time, Marine Corps Times. Marine Times? What's that? What is it? Marine Corps, Marine Corps Times. Times. Uh, it looks he- like Marine Times because they hide core up at the top. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, says in here, he says, uh, it, it's 
so what we're talking about. So he says today's war in Ukraine provides stark evidence that this is a lesson the Russian military failed to learn. This war has also proved that militaries that fail to appreciate the importance of logistics before and during a fight soon find themselves with great difficulties. Now he's referring to the divestment of things and uh, the sort of the heavily distributed nature of Force Design 2030 and EBO. So then he finishes this segment with, uh, throughout my career, the Marine Corps' air air ground combined arms team backed by solid logistics support time and again demonstrates its vital importance to our national security. And uh, I guess my thought on that, and, and I guess to... To what we're at, what I'm asking you is, is that he sees the MAGTAF as this all-encompassing, self-sustaining, which on paper for sure it is. But he wants to apply that across the various in, uh, hostile environments. I think the way that General Berger is looking at this is that yes, the MAGTAF is awesome for what it was meant for the environment it was meant to be used for. Mm -hmm. As we're shifting more towards deterrence rather than response, it's not the model that would be effective in deterring aggression Aggression, aggression with China. Is, it, is that Would you concur with that? Um, I, I, I because concur. it is so logistically hard to sustain. Exactly. Um, and also a part of it is, is because I think Van Riper is operating under the mindset where we're not able to predict the next war. Where and you need that flexibility with the MAGTAF to in order to to handle any situation that comes up, where Berger is is, is views it as, um, we are in unprecedented territory. Uh, the the te- technology parity between Russia, uh, sorry not Russia, sorry the United States and China is getting closer and closer. So a lot of the assumptions that previous generations of Marine relied upon is, is, is no longer going to, going to be the case and adapting to that environment as well. And and one of uh, Van Riper's critiques is essentially that we're sacrificing a lot of combat arms for electronic warfare, information warfare assets uh, in, in terms of personnel. And I think that maybe could be, I guess, the crux of the difference that they're operating is where Berger is, is understands that those assets are going to be per, uh, important in a future fight, which we haven't seen yet, and which is in some ways, unfolding in Ukraine with with the, with the changing information warfare, the uh, the character of it. Well, we saw, we heard from Andy Milburn too. Like it wasn't just in Ukraine. I mean, mm-hmm. they were. I, I I still love that story. That ha- like a good portion of their offensive maneuver was trolling ISIS websites. Right. <laughs> like that's amazing. Yeah. Man. Um. So yeah, we were seeing it even in. What people would cite is like our well, at least the thing that we'd have been doing for the past two decades. Yeah. And, and could that, I pause it real quick? Yeah. If we're uh, talking about logistics, we're seeing in because you know Ukraine's happening, so we can see stuff happen in real time. We gave them the ability to strike uh, Russian logistics with the HIMARS, and it, it turned out to be really easy to hit. Now, wouldn't having more uh, electronics, more uh, information, like the ability to kind of mask the uh, Logistics chain help that out? Don't you think that kind of that needs oh, to be? Oh, I, I, I think um, yeah. using the maneuver warfare, uh, I want to say like like philosophy, it can be applied into into electronic warfare. I mean, you're, essentially, you're attacking your enemy cognitively, and that could be directly through through their communications, through their through uh, their sensors, 
and and through their intelligence that's and that's how you can influence and and make this uh sorry influence the as uh, sorry if i'm butchering terminology for our listeners other but influence the battle space to to your advantage cognitively yeah so i think that general smith talked about this um acmac uh at one of i think it was a luncheon or a dinner but you, we have to get out of this mentality that logistics are going to be readily available right if we're going to be in this highly distributed environment yeah and so yes uh if you're going to have a bunch of tubed artillery you're going to need a shit ton of you know of bullets or you know the to artillery lob, shells. artillery to lob shells. into the oh, you also need trucks with gas to move them around so that's the other thing. Yeah. or, you need or the trains which is what you're seeing you're seeing in in the russia is still using rail lines to to supply their right, front lines right. with artillery so and i think we've talked you know probably ad nauseum at this point but like how do you and I know one of the arguments from these generals is, is that you, it, it'll be impossible to completely to stealthily insert and keep them hidden, these uh, stand-in forces. But assuming you can, you don't want to then compromise their position by having to resupply them all the time. Right. So your logistics argument kind of goes out the window because – and I think maybe that's where we're at this crossroads ideologically is, is that – for lack of a better term, the old guard says, hey, you are cutting us off the knees logistically. And the new concepts are saying, we need to figure out how to do logistics that isn't beholden to the old ways because the old ways are going are, aren't, aren't effective anymore. Right. And kind of to that point, if we look at one of the Van Riper points he makes um, in his op-ed is that uh, – he says that, ensu- that ensuring that infantry never fought alone, but always in combination with tanks, artillery, engineers, logistics support, health- helicopter gunships, and attack aircraft. It was kind of the, it was 1963, but uh, is what he learned from getting into the Marine Corps, and that was going to always be the case. And I think a lot of these, because, you know, we were divesting a little bit in helicopter gunships, just swap in loitering munitions, munitions yeah. right? Um, attack aircraft, those are largely can be replaced by long-range missiles and drones. Well, I mean, we, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting our own yeah, like, uh, predator drones now. Yeah, so, so. like, a lot, of this, a lot of his points here are kind of just swap out for modern equivalent. So, I don't know, are we kind of looking at losing the force for the trees in this situation, or trees for the force? I think there's just a massive yeah. distrust in yeah. having a uh, unmanned, a, a large unmanned signature. Yeah, um, relying a ton on AI uh, robots, essentially. Um, just, uh, and, I, and, I, and I think there's um, there's a certain wisdom there because we've seen in a lot of ways where the uh, less technologically advanced force has been able to overcome, and maybe a lot of it comes from the fact that a lot of this of these uh, senior leaders were uh, in Vietnam where the, you know, the Vietnamese, especially the Viet Cong were, I mean, f- far inferior yeah. to the, this massive American force, but yet went, were able, able to go toe to toe, obviously incurring massive casualties uh, in the process, but yeah. had the resolve yeah. 
uh, to continue the fight, much in the same way we're seeing, I guess, with Ukraine to a certain extent. But I think there is this apprehension that, like, if you're overly reliant on technology, that becomes your Achilles heel. And yeah. as soon as this inferior force, or the, at least on paper, is able to exploit that, then what do you do? So the argument against that is, like, I mean, like what, what's the alternative? Like, do we just switch to rocks? Well, I think, I I think what General Berger's going at is, uh, and, and again, where I sort of fall into the Hunziker camp on this is, is that you have to do something. Right. Exactly. Know? Yeah. And at the same time, uh, where they're going, I think, and, and again, maybe another ideological divergence that maybe can, will never be reconciled is I think that General Berger is leaning into deterrence. Yeah. Like, let's deter, let's keep from well, having to go into this massive thing because no one wants us to go 10 rounds with China. Vice, the the senior leaders who are against it saying, but if it happens, we don't have the capability to yeah. do it. And General Berger, is, 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 his response to that is, but that's the Joint Forces problem, not the Marine Corps problem. Yeah, and if we deny, if we direct, because we've, we've talked about what, kind of ridiculous over undertaking it would be for China to invade Taiwan. So if we are over here in the South China Sea denying that area and China decides they need to go get Taiwan, like China is shooting themselves in the foot at that point because, you know, 130 million people defending a tiny island that's 130 miles away from their mainland is not an easy, yeah. easy task. Well, also, too, we've lost a lot as – uh, techno as technology has proliferated in such a high speed and advanced mm -hmm. way, we've lost conventional warfare deterrence. Because no one necessarily, I mean, as much as we're saying, hey, China's the pacing threat, the you know, a great power competition, no one wants this. Dude, China doesn't want it either. Right. Like, it it is. I mean, we have proven ourselves on the battlefield. I mean, almost every ten years. China hasn't done it since the Cultural yeah. Revolution back in the 50s and 60s. So they don't want that to happen either. And so I guess what I'm getting at is, is if should deterrence fail, conventional warfare will fail very quickly also. Yes. And there's no other recourse other than to just start nuking each other. And so I think that's where we're getting at is, is that, yeah – we don't want the conventional fight. We really, really do not. Not only because of the massive loss of life and war chest that has to go into that, but it's only going to – It's it can't escalate. It, it will escalate very quickly, and it can't mm -hmm. because there's no – there's not a long lead. Yeah, there's nowhere for it to go right. except straight to the top. Right. I mean, the, if yeah. you look at – like the one thing that we had going for us in the long war was is that the insurgencies – wanted to keep it on their home turf and the accessibility of massive uh, inflicting massive casualties was extremely difficult and hard to employ dude we're talking hypersonic technology now we're talking about ballistic missile you know ballistic uh footprints that are just absolutely devastating and it's really easy for china obviously to respond in that way and when you're talking about regime change potential regime change uh, if they see themselves as backed in the corner with no other recourse. Um, because to me, to be quite honest, we don't have to worry about China attacking us. Right. It's going to be all on their home turf. 
mm-hmm. and they we've already talked about all of the domestic friction that they already have going on. Dude, conventional warfare isn't the deterrent it used to be. Yeah. So you have to either get in front of it or end it very, very quickly. And, and neither, you know, that, yeah, and that, that, yeah. And that usually doesn't work out. Right. We've seen that, that. You have to be very – it has to be a great technolo- technological parody and uh, a crumbling state for that to happen. And I don't – we don't see that in the cards right now. Yeah, yeah exactly. So what do you guys think of then kind of the argument that they put out that the Marine Corps is kind of fracturing its focus too much with the two MEF focusing on land war, Mediterranean war in Europe, Africa, and then uh, one MEF and three MEF focusing on divesting of everything and then kind of just focusing entirely on the South China Sea. Do you want to go first? Um, I mean, personally, I think part of it is is trying to retain that flexibility that it that is essential to the Marine Corps' mission. Um, and I can see I can see why why uh, people would argue that um, the, the I guess like your multi-direction uh, angle is is critical. Uh, but I think I I think it's also key to knowledge that. It is uh, Force Design 2030, so we still have a few years before it's completed. Also, I, I do, uh, I, I think, concur that a lot of it is ex- experimental. A lot of it is going to be involve a lot of testing and wargaming, which is, again, why they're building the wargaming center across the street. So to, to answer, I, I don't really have a, a firm uh, opinion that I think is, again, because it is a lot of it's in the air right now. And unfortunately, only time will, will, will tell. But I, 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 I do appreciate the the, um the forward thinking combined with the flexibility yeah i would i will guess i'll respond in a a different way uh my biggest concern is that there's not enough talked about what to do with the reserve force at least not in public square i'm I'm sure it's happening amongst i mean you're not in in those meetings Vic. (laughs) (laughs) we talked a little bit about that with tim while you yeah i cleaned the shitters um when they're having the meetings but i don't you know they don't do a lot of graffiti on the walls uh but i and i I do actually i know uh general dave bellin uh who is the uh commanding general of uh fourth uh uh, morpho res and he's he's an unbelievably bright guy really uh he was my task force commander when I was in Iraq in 07 and 08. Um, but I, I, I guess, so I know the conversations are happening, but just not enough in the public square or in these forums. Because I think one of the things that could help would be is if you were to tailor the reserve force to do exactly what it is, I guess, was designed to do, and that is to be that contingency force, that sort of general purpose force. So you could put a lot of this heavy equipment and this capability into there. Now, granted, um, you know, the, is, is with anything uh, when you're talking about uh, general purpose vice specialists, um, there is uh, there's going to be some a growth curve, a, a learning curve. Uh, but there's a lot of capability within the reserve force that you can nest AAV, uh, tube artillery, tanks, you could plant these things in there, get them at least so you're not having to recreate yeah. um, a heavy MAGTAF. Uh, and, and you have the res- this reserve force that can do all those things. So you can still have, I guess, in a lot of ways, you could have your cake and eat it too, is you can have these active forces, uh, you know, the first, uh, the active force working on Force Design 2030, doing this experimentation. 
And then if it doesn't, the experiments don't work out or you get into a situation where deterrence fails, now all of a sudden you can bring in this general purpose force, make it super heavy, and then go back and do uh, what the old guard thinks we need to do. So hypothetically speaking, if that's what we're, if we get to that point, why would we need to bring in the Marine heavies instead of, you know, Army, Reserve, National Guard stuff? Uh, my only thought would be, uh, you know, who can respond the fastest? Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, that would be a question for somebody like General Bellin. Uh, like, you know, how realistically, how quickly could you get a reserve tank battalion, for example, into a hot zone by waiting on, you know, 1st Armored Division from the yeah. Army? Would it be more valuable maybe to have, I'm just going to throw this out there just to be generic, uh, a reserve arm, a reserve contingent of, you know, C4 guys, you know, hackers and or communications. That's the argument and, that, yeah. that the Gazette has actually explored a lot is one of the things you can do is you can get you can get a lot of soft power out of the reserves because you have people, when you're talking specialists, their jobs are in tech, mm -hmm. in uh, – NGO-related issues, police officers, social workers, teachers. So you, ha you can project a ton of soft power uh, coming out, you know, engineers, um, that civil engineers, not uh, exploding stuff engineers. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you can get a lot of this soft power coming out of a reserve, so you could really make it – you could tailor it that way as well. So in the force design, um, as, as they're exploring that, would that not be the more logical way to go with it? Well, I guess uh, you know. So let's say you're in a divest of tanks. What would be a? What do you? I mean, and this is a legitimate question. I'm not. This isn't a, a prompt. Where would you feel like putting those? Back, like, does it mothballing them and just having them stored at Barstow the best thing? Because now you don't have to worry about maintenance. Well, doesn't the army have them now? Yeah, the Army took all 300 of them and gave a bunch of them to Poland. Well, I was going to say, ours were old yeah. by mm -hmm. Army standards anyways because yep. they were on to the A4 or whatever, and I think we were just integrating the A2. No, um, I thought we were integrating the A3. Do we have the A3? Yeah. Uh, it was old regardless yeah. of where it was. Um, so, yeah, so w do you disperse them to basically, basically put up from foreign military sales, or do you give a good portion of them to – the reserve force to maintain, train with, I don't know. I mean, yeah. is it worthwhile wasting drill weekends and annual training events in the summer on a capability you don't really see ever using because it is the joint forces responsibility, not the Marine Corps? Or would it be good to have, or do you find it beneficial to have an old school MAGTAF break glass in time of war and get them surged and ready and gone. I don't know. Uh, I guess we won't know until it Because I think yeah. once, it once deterrence we fails, yeah. the, the, the logistics footprint and the, the, the EW signature footprint issue is off the table because it didn't work. Now we yep. have to fight. Yep. Um, so you know we're here already, clearly. So now it's just a matter of maintaining mm -hmm. that that lodgement that you've already established on these islands, vice, like sort of what Imperial Japanese did, where it's like, good luck. <laughs> if you don't, if you lose, you die. Like we we're talking about, the guys on Saipan gave up five months after the war yeah, ended. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. Yeah, you win, you eat. 
<laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, let's see. I think uh, I'm going to look at the Bing West uh, arguments here real quick and see if any of them are worth talking about. Uh, I don't think so. I think we already touched on that. Yeah, I, I think General Zini, uh, I, you know, when he was still active duty and I was still active duty, I heard him speak a bunch of times. I'm going to guess freaking genius. So, I mean, I, I, I'm i sort of biased to his opinion. Anytime he speaks, I want to listen. Uh, but, you know, when he says, like, hey, you guys kind of put the cart before the horse. Like, you approved this, but then you haven't experimented with it now. And it, now it's a it's a congressionally approved, uh, you know, uh, way forward. Mm-hmm. But yet you're still in the experiment of, uh, experimentation phase. Well, there had been enough work done at the Naval Institute War College in Rhode Island uh, that – they thought that they needed to make a change. There was enough information available to General Neller in 2017 to say, uh, come on, guys, we got to fix something here because if something ha- happens between now and 2025, or in 2025, Marine Corps as it is, it's going to be useless. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, I will say like, one thing that kind of gets my, my hackles. Is that a word? Hack? My, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Goosebumps. Yeah, is uh, there one of these articles that we were looking at? It said that like the defense industry is like super behind FD twenty. Well, yeah, of course. They are. Of course. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, great. Because it's expensive. Because they get to pay. Because now you get to pay for the R and D too. You're not paying for yeah. thirty year old technology. So when I read that, I'm like, I don't think you're making the point you think you are here. <laughs> yeah. I saw that Raytheon's like, oh yeah, guys, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, the the optimist in me likes to think that it's like they have great technology that they want to work with, and then obviously the the realist in me is like those. Grubby sons of bitches. Yeah, all, all of a sudden, as soon as I read that, I just heard Black Sabbath War Pigs start yeah. playing in my head. Well, it doesn't matter if like Boeing has got like a strike on their hands. So like, yeah, if, uh, if nobody at those companies are working, but well, I mean, they got a perfect testing ground in uh, in Ukraine to see. Uh, this is true. I mean, we're seeing it in real time. And obviously, Azerbaijan mm-hmm. um, and uh, Armenia. How much do we know about those Turkish drones that they're using a lot? They're really cheap and really effective for the price. Yeah. Yeah. I know that the HIMAR stuff is expensive. It's like $100,000. Is it a rocket or is it a salvo? It depends what you're talking about. Because there's there's one that's just a single rocket that shoots a single drone. And then there's others. I think it's called the Swarm, Mm -hmm. where it just scatters a bunch of little ones out. Oh, no, the HIMAR is the rocket system. The rocket. Yeah, I think that's one for one. One rocket, one drone. One rocket, one hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, uh, <laughs> one grid coordinate gone. Like, yeah. Oh, like the actual pod itself, the high mm-hmm. Mars pod, yeah. four per rocket. Like, yeah. not talking about drones, but actual that fire. Yeah. Oh, dude, yeah, it's entire, it's entire grid square. Yeah, it just so that's, annihilates. That's more than a more than a drone. And then you could use, I think, uh, what they call. I don't even. I don't even. God, I'm so old. I don't know if they still use the thing, but it's called Fascam. But basically, it would just uh, scatter a bunch of landmines these little silver discs mm. over an entire grid square, and it just makes it untrafficable, and it can be used for anti-personnel and anti-material. Uh, can those be remotely detonated? No, no, it's it's victim detonated. Okay. But, I mean, oh boy, if you know that there's fast cam over this entire grid square, and if it's, like, a high-speed avenue of approach, like, you got to find a way around it. Yeah. Because you just covered. War as hell, man. That's, yeah. that's I mean, I, Actually, our first casualty... Uh, I experienced in uh, OIF one was we did it wasn't properly marked um, as we were crossing uh, into I think it was Al Basra, and uh, one of our Marines got out of his Humvee and stepped on it. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it was. 
was tra- uh, he, he he lived and you know all you know, for the most part uh, everything was still attached but I mean yeah all he did was just step out of the Humvee because yeah. we were in the middle of a fast camp just <laughs> a little minefield a uh, little momentary panic own, there yeah yeah anyway all right well we kind of explored the without even like slandering anybody because you know there's a lot of well, smart that's people not our, that's talking not, about stuff it's not our job to slander yeah, anyone so. unless they fucking des- oh shit deserve <laughs> it um it's okay more than 10 minutes in i don't bleep it out anymore great um <laughs> but yeah i mean so obviously these are uh great uh great arguments going on the marine corps gazette is right in the middle of it so please contribute please write get your opinion out there it matters as more than you think as someone who's written um, lengthly on the opinions of individual Marines within the Marine Corps Gazette and on influencing policy, I can tell you that it is uh, very important that we at least parse these issue out from people of all ranks. So please contribute. Please write. If you want to come on here and, and yell at us about uh, your opinion on Force Nine Twenty Thirty, yeah, hit us no, up. I think that's a good point. I think one of the th- one of the perspectives that have really uh, is we're devoid of right now are the people who are going to be in the trenches pulling the trigger on this stuff. Yeah. We're hearing a lot, obviously, at the top level. <laughs> but how about people who are you know, coming into this thing, especially prior enlisted uh, junior officers? Dude, definitely want to hear from you on this stuff. All right. And you can find us at scuttlebutt at mca-marines.org. Uh, we can or contribute an article. Contribute an article. Gazette which, or Leatherneck. Honestly, if you reach out to Scuttlebutt, we'll get you in the right place there too. Yeah, so. for sure. Yeah. Um, Our emails are on the magazines. Check them out. Hit us up. Yeah. Friendly, so. please. <laughs> Constructive <right. Yeah>. feedback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, less emphasis on the hit. All right. So, seems like a good place to wrap it up. Uh, we are. This is our uh, last episode of the month. Uh, so thanks again to Service Credit Union for supporting us these past few weeks. And uh, all of our opinions are just ours. They don't represent the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps Association, Marine Corps Gazette, anything like that. It's just us in a room talking shit. <laughs> and that's the disclaimer. So All right. All right, everybody. Thanks again to Service Credit Union. Take it easy. All right. <laughs>